children in uh, grades one through three. And be dismissed at this time. It is a uh, privilege to be in front of you this morning to be able to bring the word of God to you. And as I look at the clock, I can only think that Pastor Smith would be jealous of all the time that he has this morning. But I will do my best to uh, not follow in his footsteps. Uh, he's actually up at Pinebrook this morning. Uh, it's snow glow, so think of him in this cold, cold weather uh, up there. But uh, I'm sure they're having a great time. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to start uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles, and you may be wondering why Ecclesiastes, and I would answer that with, I don't know. Uh, other than the fact that when I first considered what I would be preaching on, uh, the book jumped out to me as one that is relevant to today, given the, the content and the topic that, uh, that it covers. Specifically, in this time of year, we've just entered into a new year. Uh, 2022 is in its infancy, right? We are three weeks in, which seems weird to think about already, but we're at the time where we make a lot of resolutions. We have a lot of goals. We have a lot of hope for what this year might be, and prayerfully better than last year. However, I don't know about you, but this year tends to feel like it's just a repeat of last year, right? The last couple of years, with all of COVID and everything going on in our world, it just kind of seems like it's just rolling over, and this is like 2020 part three. Um, and that speaks to what we see here in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Megan and I, as you may know, have four girls, wonderful, beautiful healthy girls, and we are thankful for them, but we have two of them that are under the age of four, uh, specifically one that is 18 months old, and she is a spunky 18-month-old. She is our fastest uh, to walk, or the soon to walk and even run. If you've seen her run, it is quite hilariously uh, cute. But she likes to do everything her sisters do. She likes to climb on the table. She likes to pull things off shelves. Uh, sometimes she'll even try to fit herself into the shelf. Um, my favorite part is when in the oven, we have an oven, and the drawer underneath, which I have no idea what it's for. Uh, someone can inform me later. But she likes to pull that open, and she will climb into that drawer and sit down in that drawer. And so she's all over the place. And so trying to keep the house clean and decluttered is not an option. Uh, she'll pull everything, like I said, off the shelf, and it leaves Megan throughout the day wondering, why do I even bother? Why do I even try to clean the house or keep things tidy? Uh, because she's always just a whirlwind, a tornado flying through, wrecking everything. And sometimes life can feel that way, right? Sometimes life feels very repetitive. Each week we begin again. Tomorrow there will be a Monday and though routines are a welcome companion to our lives, most of us function better when we have a routine, we have a pattern of life, it can also leave us feeling unfinished. There's always more to do. There's always more work in the office, groceries to buy, toddlers to pick up after, laundry to do, and dishes to clean. Not to mention when the summer comes, the grass to cut and cars and homes to maintain. But... What we see here in Ecclesiastes is the, the preacher observes these things and comes to the conclusion that all 
is vanity. Right? Ecclesiastes, in a sense, can be summed up with that one phrase, that all is vanity. But before we dive in and we look at what this means and how we should respond to it, we have to ask the question, who is this preacher and to whom is he writing? We see in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of all vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. So reading that at a cursory glance, it seems very hopeless, very bleak, very without much purpose. But we go back to verse 1 to identify who is writing these things down, who is saying, who is this preacher? Well, the two clues we find in verse 1 is a son of David and king in Jerusalem. It would lead us to assume, at least, that it is King Solomon who is writing this based on that he was a son of David and also a king in Jerusalem. Equally, given Solomon's wealth and resources, he would have the means to carry out the opportunity to carry out the various tests that we see later in the book. He would have access uh, to things that most other people would not. Though there is some debate that this was written by someone else, uh, regardless, it is in the Word of God, and it is uh, timeless, and its meaning is profitable for us as we, as we look to train ourselves in righteousness. It seems likely that Solomon wrote this near the later end of his life as he reflected back. Uh, I find it interesting that it's between Proverbs and Song of Songs, both books that have a much more hopeful outlook on life. But he's writing to Israel, who was likely dealing with a rampant insurgence of materialism, which, if you have to just think about that for a little bit, I mean, I know that we don't have that same problem today with materialism, but if you can imagine what it would be like if we just lived in a world full of material things. They were likely experiencing the wealth of the nation and their geographical position. It's sitting between Egypt and Assyria. And while they were not friendly, there was still trade to happen and money to be made and money to be lost. So again, the underlining theme, the topic of this book is that we gain nothing if we store up treasures in heaven, or treasures on earth, rather. We gain nothing if we toil apart from God. All is vanity. And we cannot deny 
as he points, every day the sun rises and the sun sets, right? Every morning your alarm clock goes off, whether you are ready for it or not, and the day returns and repeats, and we continue doing various things. The word vanity here means vapor, breath, right? It's here today, gone tomorrow, almost even gone the second it leaves your mouth. A clear example is you walk outside this very moment, and you breathe, and you see your breath, and it's gone very quickly. There's nothing to gain, right? There is no gain. There's no progress in the toils of man. It's because we live in a fallen world, a cursed world that is broken because of the sin of Adam and Eve, because of our sin, right? And this is important because we need to remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and set our framework, our worldview to realize that this is a fallen world, that we are living in a cursed world, not as it should be. Genesis chapter 1 speaks of this, God created man in his own image and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. There was purpose, there was gain, there was for the multiplication of mankind and for the glory of God, creation was. And God created and God blessed it. However, then the fall of Adam, we see that the ground is cursed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it. Life is brief. Our lives, though feel long, are only a speck on the timeline of creation. The earth remains as generation goes and leaves. Notice the placement of the sentence. He doesn't say generation comes and goes. No, a generation leaves, dies off, and another generation rises up and doesn't remember them. There, of course, there's birth and there's death, but the earth remains through it all. I raised a question, I believe, in, in the Sunday school class with youth a couple weeks ago. How many of you remember the name of your great-grandfather? How many of you remember the name of your great-grandfather? How many of you know what your great-grandfather or great-grandmother were like as people? What did they like to do? What, did, what was their favorite thing? What did they do for a living? Right? Sometimes we know these facts and we know their names. We know when they lived and they died. But what did they leave behind? What did they leave behind? We have countless cemeteries across this country and even older ones in Europe of people history has forgotten about. What was here today will be likely forgotten tomorrow. So not only is life brief, but life is repetitive. He mentions the sun. The sun goes, rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Each day it rises in the east, it sets in the west, continue on the same path. 
And once it sets, it rises again. The word hasten literally means to gasp or pant, as if it has no time to rest. He likens it to an athlete running a race. The repetitiveness of our world, things continuing and going around. What has happened before will happen again. Right? The, the calendar will flip over, but we'll still deal with many of the same issues. It's noteworthy to notice that the psalmist takes a different approach to the sun. In Psalm 104, verse 19 through 23, we see that the, he looks at nature and sees the moon that marks the season. The sun knows it's time for setting. The darkness, the beasts of the forest creep out. The young lion roars for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down. Man goes out to do his work and his labor until evening. The psalmist takes the approach of looking and noticing how God sustains and directs creation for all of its manifold forms. Whereas the preacher in Ecclesiastes looks and sees, well, it's just repetitive. There's no, no goodness in it. It just happens, and it just continues to happen. But remember, the preacher is conducting these experiments under the sun, apart from God. He looks at the wind and sees that it is elusive. The wind goes round and round and comes back again. Goes from the north, around and around, and on its currents, the wind returns. The wind seems to have more freedom than the sun, but is also trapped in its comings and goings. It blows and you see it, you see its effects, but it undoes what it did, and therefore, again, there's no profit, there's no gain. One of the clearest examples of this is in the fall when you have the leaves falling and you have to clear the leaves. And I'm, I'm thankful that our house, we have no trees in our backyard, but we do have neighbors who unfortunately have trees. And so we do get a few leaves. And so I was out and I'm like, all right, I got to clear these leaves. And I have a, a little uh, leaf blower. It's not a very powerful one. It's battery operated, but it gets the job done, except on, wind, on windy days, right? If you, any of you have ever tried to blow leaves on a windy day, it is the epitome of unprofitable. Because you're blowing leaves one way, and the wind comes and blows them back the other way. There's no, no gain. There's no profit in the wind. It comes and goes and comes back again. We cannot, we can harness the power, but we cannot control the wind. It is elusive. And finally, he notices in verse 7 that life is unavailing. There is no, nothing left over. The streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow there, they flow again. He's looking finally at the, the water cycle, right? His primary observation was probably the Dead Sea, right? The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea just stays there. Of course, the salt is deposited as the water evaporates, but it doesn't overflow. It doesn't fill more. It, there's nothing left. There's no gain. And so this analogy from nature speaks to the repetitiveness of life. We can work and work and work, but nothing really comes of it. Water flows constantly to the sea, yet there's, what does it have to show for itself? Nothing other than it stays relatively the same. And so in verse 8, he comes to this conclusion that what will be 
will always be. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The world is inexplicable. It's unexplainable. We can't, we don't have the words to think about it. We can't explain it because there is mirage of progress all around us. Right? Especially in the day and age in which we live, right? Solomon didn't have the technology, as Eric mentioned, that we have today. Right? We even have technology we didn't even have 20 years ago, 30 years ago. TVs that you can just connect to the internet. Computers that we can put in our pocket and just walk away. And what we use them for? Taking pictures and scrolling social media. The phones, the phones in our pocket have more computing power. Actually, it's very interesting. I can look this up. Some of the chargers that you plug into the wall have more computing power than the entire NASA space program during the Apollo missions that put man on the moon. A little charging brick that you plug into the wall. That's crazy. So who can, how can we say things are not progress, things don't get better? But they're just new and improved versions of what was before. I, my favorite is watch, watching car commercials when they launch the new, all new Toyota Camry. Like, what makes it all new? It's got four wheels, an engine, a steering wheel. What's new? What's all new about it? Maybe the design is a little different, but it's, it's still the same. It's still a car. They haven't really changed much in the last, other than they have computers on them now, too. But we can't explain it. We want things, we want things to be new, but at the end of the day, we realize nothing is new. It's all been done before. We're left yearning, this wanting desire. And without God, we are left with this inexplicable emptiness, this weariness in ourselves. The world is insatiable. We can't be satisfied, but what is in the world? Right? We always are longing. Right? The eye is not satisfied. The ear is not full. Life will never leave us satisfied. Because we, people have been pursuing pleasures and success, wealth, for a long time. But while they're satisfied for a little bit, they, they leave and they're filled Again, with emptiness, a longing for something more or something entirely different. I was reminded as I was studying this of um, a quote that would almost be a modern-day interpretation of Ecclesiastes by one uh, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, famous in the 90s and continues to be relatively successful, uh, once said this, that I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they will realize that's not the answer. Someone who has reached fame, success, wealth, resources beyond uh, compare, realizes in the day that it's not the answer, doing everything that you want, ever dreamed of. Similarly, in 2005, a professional athlete who had won three Super Bowl rings at that point sat down with the interview uh, with 60 Minutes and said this, there's got to be more than this. Someone who had reached sports success, right? Fame, both in the sports world and beyond. And as he admitted in that interview, making more money than he ever thought possible playing football, said there's got to be more than this. Now, 
several Super Bowls after. I don't know if he's found more or if he's still looking, but I do know he has also made the quote that his favorite ring is the next one. So doesn't seem like he's satisfied yet. But we see this play out in every aspect of our lives. Most recently in the advent of streaming services that are all over the place. Right? And especially in binge watching, right? We always just want to watch one more episode, one more show, one more movie, one more. We want more. We don't want the story to end because we're never satisfied with the end of something. We always want to keep going. But Paul writes in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, that I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I am in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is contentment that we learn in the Lord, a peace in all circumstances that we find a fulfillment in Christ and not in our wants or our desires, not in the things that this world offers. Because our longing for things will never satisfy our eyes and never fill our ears. And so the preacher concludes this section with a statement of the theme, restatement of the theme, where he concludes that there's nothing new under the sun. Verses 9 through 11, what has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which I is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. He states an objection that might be, well, look, this is new. This is something new. For instance, a baby is born. There's new birth. Babies have been born for a long time. There is flight. We can say there is flight, but man has just made the machines enabling them to fly. Birds have flown since the beginning of creation. Again, we have smartphones, but man has communicated before. They're just different manifestations of old things. It has been done before. There is nothing new under the sun. We are only creatures who do not have the ability to create anything new. We can only repurpose and discover new ways to make created things work together. Thomas Edison, uh, one of the greatest inventors, said this about his inventions, they were only bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them for the happiness of man. They were bringing out secrets, right? Connecting things, making things, but not creating anything new. In verse 11, he concludes with this very somber thought that there is no remembrance. We are, we will be forgotten. Generations come and go and they are forgotten. History records the heroes and the villains, but the people in the middle are lost in the fog of yesteryear. I remember in my freshman year of college, we visited Philadelphia. Uh, when we were, the school was in Langhorn, so we took the train down into the city, and just, it's not a very good idea having a bunch of freshmen who have never been in, in Philadelphia to go explore Philadelphia. Thankfully, they had people to guide us 
upperclassmen. But we get down, and I remember distinctively walking out of one of the train stations, seeing a mural of people, faces without names, people who had lived long ago, who are now just, who had all been but forgotten. Right? Countless times we see pictures of people, generations before us, that their individuality, their has been forgotten. And so we're left with this question of what is the point, what is the preacher trying to get at, and where does our hope come from? Well, Jesus is our hope, but he asks his disciples this very similar question, because he, now before you get on me about Jesus changes nothing, it's nothing about vanity, right? He changes everything in other regards. But vanity stays the same. We see in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus asked this question of his disciples, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus echoes the words of the preacher in Matthew. What gain is it to a man who gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jesus is talking about following him. The cost is to deny oneself, to die to ourselves, our own desires, our own vain labor, and follow him. And so the question for us is, will we do that today? What do we need to lie down in order to follow Jesus? What do we need? What vain pursuit are we searching for? What pleasure are we chasing that will not satisfy? In Matthew 6, he raises a similar question, or a similar statement. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in to steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And we're not to store up treasures. We're not to gain and work for things that will only remain here on earth. They will be destroyed. They will not last. And ultimately, they will be taken away and given to someone else. Jesus shares the parable of the rich man who builds up his barns and says, oh, I have, I have a lot for myself. Let me build up bigger barns. I may store more. But that very night, his soul is requested of him, and he doesn't even get to enjoy it. We should be longing for what matters for eternity and for God's glory. And so we see that life is not in vain when it is lived according to God's will, or the will of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians as Paul points out, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, your, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We can press on because we know that the work we do in the Lord is not in vain. It doesn't fade away. There is real gain. There is profit. There is something to be left over. Maybe not in this life, but in eternity to follow. We work, the work we do is for the kingdom of God and for his glory. It may seem meaningless. It may seem like it's not accomplished anything because we live in a world that is broken. But God promises us that it will not be the flesh and blood that inherits the kingdom of God. At the end, the trumpet will sound and we will put on the imperishable and we will put on the immortal and we will have victory over death and we will have victory over the meaningless 
and the mundane. Over the brevity of life, the repetition of life, the elusiveness and the unavailing of life, because we will say, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And we can say this because Jesus says in John 10, I have come, the thief comes to steal and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Vanity of vanities, no. Abundantly, right? Vanity, if vanity means no gain, abundantly means so much gain. Do we have this life today? Are we pursuing Jesus with everything that we have? Everything that is in within us? Do we struggle with the vanity of life? Are we caught up in the cycle of this repetitive vapor? The answer is come to Jesus. Find your purpose, your hope in Him and Him alone because we find purpose in doing the work of God. We find purpose remaining in Jesus. We experience true life. Pastor Smith covered this last week in our uh, panel of sorts. right In John chapter 8, he mentions that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. will set you free from the van- vanity, the cycle of repetitiveness of this world that leads to nothing. So we have a choice to make. Today, as you exit this auditorium, this sanctuary, you can choose really just two things. You can easily be trapped into the newest gadget, the nicest new car, houseboat, house or boat, maybe a houseboat, phone, grill, couch, chick, uh, kitchen, appliance, or whatever it might be, and you'll know by the time you get that thing home and get it set up, there will be a new one on the market tomorrow. Or you can choose to serve God. Jesus makes this point again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our battle while we're here on earth, will we serve ourselves and toil endlessly for something, for nothing? That will end up being nothing, or will we serve God and seek his kingdom? Will we seek righteousness and do work that matters, that is a purpose, that has eternal value, that will never fade away? These are difficult decisions that we can't make just this morning, but every morning, every hour of every day. Again, in Matthew 16, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny his pleasures, deny his own desires, and take up my cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Life is not in vain when it is lived according to the will of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus.
Lord, otherwise we are not only trapped in an unending cycle of vanity, an unending circle of life that proves to be no, no gain, no profit, no real meaning, but also, Lord, we are saved from our sins. We are saved from the ill thought that this is all there is. Lord, we are renewed and restored to relationship with you in which we get to enjoy life, enjoy it abundantly, eternally in your presence. And Lord, we long for that day and we long to make each day here on earth a glimpse of the future hope, future glory that we have with you. Lord, let us be lights that shine. Let us be examples to this world that there is more than just what we see. Lord, thank you that we have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Lord, help our unbelief. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.